Uh, let me see the American Cinematheque website here. Oh, Friend of the Fest 2023, August 24th through the 30th. Oh, Justin, I don't, I don't know if you, your, your mouth is moving. Can, can you not read without moving your mouth? <laughs> hey, hey Alan. <laughs> hey, Tyler. I didn't, I didn't realize you guys were here. We've Dude. been sitting right next to you for 20 minutes. Do we have an episode of Better Than yes. the Movie we have to record? Yes. Is that what you're... Oh, sorry, sorry. Um, have you guys seen this American Cinematheque website? Have you seen this listing for Friend of the Fest 2023? Yes, yeah, you they, showed it to us. Do you us? know that uh-huh. Sunday, August 27th at 4 p.m. we're introducing a film? Yeah, man. Yeah, Oppenheimer. The, we all I mean, at I mean, the Los uh, Feliz 3 Theater, we are introducing Sally Potter's film of Orlando based on the book by Virginia Woolf. 4 p.m. Sunday, August 27th. Go to the American Cinematheque website. Do we have to be experts at doing that? <laughs> no, Thankfully, no, no. They just no. let us talk. Oh, thank God. I'm going to get real weird with it real wild. The guest yeah. from our last episode of Better Than the Movie, uh, Kristen Lopez, is going to be introducing the show before us. 1 p.m. Uh, Ticklish Business presents Four Daughters. So that that might be a good show. Just like uh, uh, spend your whole uh, Sunday with us. The thing that's nice about this is that even if our introduction isn't great, the movie's great. And that's all the people will remember. Well, you don't know how weird I'm going to get. So we'll see. We'll see who wins. Isn't your mom going to be there? I know, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's your episode. Hi, and welcome back. I'm Tyler. I'm a bookseller at Skylight Books and, uh, and your host here on the Skylight Books Podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, today, I'm going to be with Elliot Callen. Uh, Elliot, who you may know as uh, the head writer for The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, where he won four Emmy Awards, head writer and EP of Mystery Science Theater 3000 for Netflix, head writer and co-EP of the WG award-winning The Fake News with Ted Nelms, a writer for the Netflix Emmy-nominated The Who Was Show, and co-host of the popular podcast The Flophouse, Presidents are People 2 and Iapodius. He's also the author of the children's picture books Horse Meets Dog and Sharko and Hippo, co-author of the best-selling Earth the Book, and has written comic books for Marvel, DC, and Valiant, where he was nominated for a Harvey Award. He lives in Los Angeles with his wife and two insane children. And today we're talking about The Maniac of New York. Thank you so much for having me. It sounds like I did a lot of stuff. I feel like uh, when I look back at my life, I see a vast emptiness, but, but my, my bio makes it sound like I accomplished a lot. So thank you for that. <laughs> well, that's, you know, we really want to make sh- people are feeling good and strong about their careers right when we start the pod and, and then we can dig in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's nice. I appreciate it. My, my, my two children are less insane than they once were. I feel like they're getting saner. As that, is, that is the way I hope. Uh, <laughs> as someone with no children, I think you just kind of have, you're teaching a kind of a sociopath to be a person, right? I mean. Oh, very much so. They, they, they start as animals, and then they become sociopaths, and then eventually become full human beings. And, it's a and you've written two children's books, so I know maybe in some way that was a, a release or a creative expression of that feeling. Uh, oh, oh, very much so. I mean, it, it, and uh, both of my children's books, uh, there's a third one that I'm working on right now that will hopefully come out someday, but all of them have been inspired by either interests or situations that my children have had. And so they are, they're, they're useful for that. They, they do inspire a lot of, a lot of work, um, but they also take a lot of work too. You know, as, as my, 
podcast co-host Stuart always says, parenting. It's it's the hardest job you're ever going to love. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's about right. Well, and so I should just say again that we were talking a little bit beforehand, but you, you are the co-host of uh, a long-running podcast. Before people knew what podcasts were, uh, you were you were hosting the Flop House, uh, which is a favorite of mine, and and as I said, my uh, my girlfriend who it's our eighth anniversary. So when this comes out in a month or two, she's going to be like, "This is what you were doing on our eighth anniversary? What? Well, you weren't planning something better?" <laughs> no, she'll be so excited. She'll go, you were talking to the Ellie Kalen of the Flop House on our anniversary. So I'll say happy anniversary. And yeah, this is this podcast, the Flop House. It was started by my friends, uh, Dan McCoy and Stuart Wellington, and they asked me to join it soon after they started. And we're, uh, by the time this episode, by the time the podcast we are on right now, you and me is released, I think we'll have had our 400th episode come out. And that's not including the alternate episodes we do that for some reason we number differently and I'm not sure why. And, uh, but it's, we've been doing it for yeah, almost 16 years now, which is bonkers, but you got to do something. You got to do something with your time. Look. Yeah. There's only, there's only so much of it uh, and it needs to be filled with something. Uh, so, <laughs> I, <laughs> which for me, so now it's, it's been great. I, I, being at Skylight Books, the last like six months or so, my schedule has been that every Saturday morning I'm in the store, but I'm in the back receiving books, which is a different thing. I, I don't have to talk to customers. I don't have to look professional at all. Oh, what a and sweet so, deal. Amazing. Oh, I'm just surrounded by books and I can listen to whatever I want. So every Saturday morning I go, it's receiving time, put the, put the Flophouse Boys in my ears. And that's how I start, started. It's become a real part of the routine. Yeah. That's how I used to get through, uh, when I lived in Brooklyn, get through being a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op was when it was my shift I just, I'd say, I'll work inside the dairy freezer. I don't care. And I'd go inside that dairy refrigerator and just put Metallica on. And just, that's all I would do is just listen to that while I sort milk. And it was great. I didn't have to interact with another human being. It was wonderful. I should say, I should mention also, I was really excited to be asked uh, by you to be on the podcast. Skylight Books is a fantastic bookstore. It's one of my favorite bookstores. And I love going over there. So it's a, it's a store that, um, I don't know. I'm, I was happy to be on the podcast of a great store rather than a podcast for a mediocre or poor bookstore. <laughs> uh, we appreciate the designation. Absolutely. And it was <laughs> you've done you did an event at the store for uh, that's actually been on the podcast as well. Yeah, for my first uh, picture book, Horse Meets Dog, we did an event at the store. And I think in the podcast that was released, you can hear me multiple times having to tell my son to to please let me talk and, and stop it's, it's uh, as adorable as it was i'm sure on the day annoying uh it is very sweet oh, <laughs> yeah well so I, I i did bring you on specifically because uh we've got uh maniac of new york in uh our arts annex which is sort of the the cool the cool older brother of the main store which is just a couple doors down point you in the direction of some interesting comics or foreign things, you know, books about movies you haven't seen, uh, <laughs> which, which is a great place to work as well. It's really quiet in there as well. That's in the, I'm in the back of there when I receive and it's so quiet and cool. Uh, it's actually, it's much like a, a dairy milk uh, refrigerator. It's very cold in the back. And I love it. Um, but you got to keep those books fresh. Gotta keep keep them, them yeah. Otherwise they're going to, they're going to burn up. It's not good. Yeah. You need to keep you need to keep the temperature of the back room at Fahrenheit four fifty or lower. You can't let it go above four fifty. Just bravo! Uh, I love that. 
so much. Uh, thank you for the Bradbury uh, drop. Uh, it's, uh, it's great. Oh, such a book-centric joke. If it doesn't kill here, I don't know where it kills. This is perfect. Uh, it's not going into the act then, for sure. If it doesn't work on this, then it's, it's, I'm definitely not doing it when I open up the Bellagio. You know, yeah, for Terry Fader, I, I, I don't know if his crowd's pulling out the Bradbury reps. Uh, yeah, probably or, not. Or maybe. Not, yeah. I don't know who's to say. Uh, you know, uh, but so I, I love Maniac in New York. I was so excited at hearing you kind of talk about it on on the show. And, and so I was, I loved, I was so excited when I got the first one. And then we actually just got the the bound, the, the five issues of, the, of Bronx is Burning. And so I was like, God, you know, I have a podcast and basically free reign. So I'm going to reach out to someone I, I'm really interested in. And so I love this idea. It's, it's so great. And as a longtime listener also, I, I should thank you because uh, somewhere in my house is a taking a poem one two three poster uh, that my girlfriend bought me because she's like you love this movie and I'm like well you introduced me to the podcast that the guy it's his favorite movie and he talks about it all the time now I watch uh, it's my, it's my favorite movie of all time taking Pelham one two three and I have I have my poster of it and it's packed away I need to get it unpacked and framed again but I used to have it hanging up in uh in my office back at the Daily Show and I would just look at it and just be like. Oh, th- those were the days in New York when things were crazy. When, as my on my commute today, there was no- nothing of interest happened. But back oh, then, all the good all stuff the was happening. Robert Shaw could just show up. Uh. Oh yeah, you never knew. Robert Shaw and Martin Balsam and Hector Elizondo and Wilson from Home Improvement—they might just show up on your train yeah. and cause trouble. You never knew. All of a sudden, you're just being you're you're being held hostage. It's crazy. It's bad. Uh, yeah. What a time to be alive in New York. Uh, the streets are way dirtier, uh, <laughs> but uh, so it's it's the best. And so obviously, I see a lot of shared DNA with that and this. I think that especially the first uh, the first volume, uh, it, yes, it's just so. specifically taking place on a train. Uh, but so I so I guess really what I, I was just was kind of wondering is like where did the, what was the seed of this idea and, and how did it how long did it kind of take because it's so pressing it feels like it's in the moment but like how long did it kind of take to get from from idea to to page? That's a good question. So Maniac in New York for anyone who's listening who's not familiar it's a story about a uh, there's a masked killer you know a slasher movie type killer who's loose in New York and he's unstoppable he's unkillable. And he's been doing it for years. And so the government has gone from this is a crisis to look, we've just got to deal with this. This is just a thing that happens and there's nothing we can do about it. And so living in New York is a matter of uh, just knowing that at any moment this masked, you know, undead killer might cut your head off. Uh, and it's just something you live with. And it kind of came from two, two different origin points that converged. Um, the first being when I was young, my intense disappointment with the movie Friday the 13th, part eight, Jason Takes Manhattan, which I grew up in New Jersey. I was right outside of New York. My grandmother lived in New York. We were in and out all the time. And so the city was like a place that I thought of a lot, especially like movies about New York City made a big impression on me when I was a kid. And it felt like, well, that's where you, that's where the world is. That's where you go when you're grown up. And when I saw that Jason was going to take Manhattan, I was like, this is going to be amazing. I loved it when the Muppets took Manhattan, but this is going to be very different. It's going to be so, it like the city is so big, but there's so many iconic locations and there's so many different types of people there. And who knows if he's, the body count could be astounding. And I kind of built up in my head over the, but I was too young to see these movies. I was scared of them. And so in my head, I built up this elaborate, you know, all these death traps and things like that. And then when I finally got to see the movie later, when I was a teenager, it was like, 
oh, this is it. Like he's, <laughs> he's barely in New York. They shot almost none of it in the city. And what he does is very generic and he doesn't, not, not what I imagined, which was um, the frightening, the, the, the terror of uh, the inevitability of something. Something mm. that's so super scary to me is when something is inevitable. There's nothing you can do about it. And the idea of a killer who can just mow his way through a crowd with a blade and no one can stop him. So you just either get out of his way or you know you're dead. Uh, is is terrifying to me. When I lived in New York, I would scare myself when I was on the subway by if the train stopped in this in the middle of a tunnel, which it did often. I would just be like, if just if a guy with a machete walked on, if a masked slasher with a machete walked on here, that's it. I'm gone. And I would just see him killing his way down the train car, and just I knew he would get to me eventually. There's no way I can get out of this. Mm -hmm. I can't talk my way out of it or anything. And, and those fantasies very much came from my original assumption of what Jason Takes Manhattan was going to be like, you know, and I would scare myself often when I was taking the train in New York with that idea of like, oh, what if like a monster entered the train? Or if I'm on an, uh, an elevated line in Queens and it's nighttime, and I'm looking down the street and I'm seeing people walking around. What if I just saw a monster walk by? How scary would it be to know that that thing is somewhere in the city, even if I'm safe at the moment from it? And so those things lived in my head and I kind of always wanted to tell that story. And I never knew exactly what the right format should be for a while. Like at one point um, I was thinking of doing it as like a novel that would be like an oral history of the maniac years in New York. And then world war Z came out and I was like, well, he just did that. I'm not going to, I can't do that now. And, hmm. or um, whether it makes sense as a screenplay or who knows what. And at a certain point I came to realize I have to justify to myself telling a story. That's just a guy murdering a lot of people in new york like it's what what does it say about me as a person that i want to see this so badly like the story has to be about something or else i'm just a monster and one of the things that really angers me about what's going on in america right now there's a lot of things that anger me about what's going on in america and the world right now but is especially the way that we handle gun violence in this country especially mass gun violence where rather than trying to do what would seem to be the clearest solution which is to make it harder for people to have access to murder weapons. The response from the government is, well, let's make it harder for the people with murder weapons to get to you by restricting you, rather than restricting the freedom to acquire weapons of murder, let's make it, let's restrict the freedom of children, ordinary people, people attending public events, like, uh, and let's, and there was at one point, I forgot who it was, but there was a, one of many, many mass shootings. There was a there was a person in the government who was like, well, I guess we have to start teaching normal people first aid so that they're ready for these things, which seems like such a backwards way to deal with it. And this idea that there are enough people who feel that it is, they would rather you die than that they be inconvenienced or feel limited in some way. And so I was like, okay, well, that's what this is about then. This is about when a problem is so terrifying that people kind of refuse to do anything about it or feel they can't do anything about it and they just accept it and it becomes part of the warp and woof of ordinary life uh and especially the way that governments are afraid of doing long-term difficult things and so if something doesn't get solved right away it's just not going to get solved uh, much like how uh my, my you know there's a cabinet in my house the hinges don't quite work I keep meaning to fix it. I tried to fix it once. It didn't work. It's not getting fixed. It's just, I'm always going to be dealing with that cabinet. You know, I'm just, that'll just be the cabinet that, that bothers me whenever I use it. Or I might go out of my way not to use the cabinet rather than fixing it. And so those two ideas kind of merged together in my head. 
And I was uh, introduced by my managers to this publisher, Aftershock Comics. And I pitched the idea to them and they wanted to do it really badly. And, um, and they, for the most part, they've been a really great home for it. And I, I've been able to tell the story exactly the way that I want to tell it. Um, the editors I've worked with there have been great. And the artists that I've been working with on the series, Andre Moody, they, uh, they matched us up, even though I realized after the fact that we had worked on a story together years ago and had forgotten about it. it. So much there to unpack that I love. The, uh, the American Vampire series from DC, from Vertigo. But uh, his, I love the way he does the art on it. I love the, the atmosphere that he brings to it and his, the character acting he brings to it. And so I feel like I'm like, oh, okay. Like I finally, after years of thinking about the story, it's finally existing in this form that I think really is doing my hopes for it justice. Uh, and I would love to, my dream is to someday bring it to the silver screen, but that's proved difficult. Uh, so for now, I'm just going to have to be happy with, uh, with it existing on the page. What a long answer. Yeah, that was a long answer I just gave. That was great. Jimmy Fallon would have laughed through that whole thing. He'd have loved it. Uh <laughs> Because I, I, I mean, that's that's a, a very truthful answer. I feel like when it comes to the way something that that usually uh, has, it seems like it's it seems like an idea that it stuck with you for a long time. And I think uh, obviously you're a big horror fan, yes. obviously, and so it's like that makes a lot of sense that it kind of takes a while to build and percolate to find the sort of connective tissue to, to turn it into a story. Uh, I feel like I as a as a as a writer, I either work very fast or very slowly. And I'm not, and I don't usually work in the middle. Like if you need me to write jokes on something and I have 50 minutes, I can do it. And if, but if you need, if you need me to figure out a story and you allow me to take three years to do it, I can do that. But there's something, for some reason, I can't, I can't quite figure out how to get into that like couple months execution uh, process. But uh, you mentioned, you mentioned earlier that there was something kind of like prescient about the book. And I think, and it's like, I think that, one of the things I'm happiest with it is that, you know, all, all really great horror has a, some kind of metaphor in the heart of it, or at least is open enough that you can interpret it as metaphor for, for one thing or another. And um, with, uh, with this one, I feel like my metaphor was very much about gun violence, but that the, it's, I was able to do it, if I'm praising myself, I was able to do it where it was open enough that you can read any sort of inability to solve a problem into it or like public health disaster. And so when I started writing it, COVID was a thing that had not happened yet. And when it's, when it was coming out, it was coming out originally during COVID pandemic times. And people were like, Oh, you were really, you really uh, kind of like, it's so relevant. And I was like, yeah, but it was supposed to be relevant for a different <laughs> reason. And then there's a scene in, um, there's a scene in, uh, in the Bronx is burning the second volume that involves the, the killer uh, maniac Harry, the monster, the killer monster. He is, he is loose in a school. And there's a scene where the, the police are not letting parents get into the school. And then the police start violently clearing the parents out of the way. And that was written before the exact thing happened in real life. And so I started to feel this, this kind of frightened, frightening uh, power that the things that I was writing into the series were somehow coming true. And it makes me very worried. And so I'm hoping that I'm hoping the third volume is slowly coming out from Aftershock and individual issues. And it's called Don't Call It a Comeback. And I'm hoping that nothing in that comes true. That would be terrible. I want to I want to break I want to I want to break my my streak of predicting things. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's funny. I, I was going to mention Bronx is burning because I think it, it felt like obviously I, I kind of had known it was 
the metaphor, like having heard about you talk about it mm-hmm. in the lead up to the pandemic, I was like, oh, I, I could make the one A to B. It's obviously about gun violence, but it, it was obviously it works in a way that the coronavirus pandemic and the lack of response from the government is is actually even just as just as on point. And I was like, oh, I wonder. And, and maybe I, this is just me wondering, but it was like, I felt like maybe putting it in the second volume in a school was almost to like resharpen the point a little bit to be like, no, no, this is, this is about violence and gun violence in school. Like in, in that location is certainly so loaded for that specific type of, you know, mass violence that. Yeah, I, I think you're, you're right that the, uh, the not knowing entirely, actually, I could, I think so. I think there was, I think you're right that. I wanted it to, I wanted to reassert that that was my intention with it, mm-hmm. but also just trying to think to myself, what is the scariest situation for this? And especially as a parent, I, w- I want to think it's as a human being, but especially as a parent, the scariest idea to me is children in, in danger. And readers of the book, this is a spoiler, readers of the book will know that I did not have the guts to kill any children in it. I just couldn't bring myself to, that was too, that was too much. That was too much for me. I couldn't bring myself to do it. And then I make up for it to myself by having an enormous massacre of adults later on in the, in the story. But uh, the something that that has been exciting to me about this series is that much the way that, you know, I spent a lot of my career working at The Daily Show, and that was using humor to kind of process things going on in the world that were unpleasant or disappointing or terrifying or saddening. And I feel like with this series, I've been able to use horror in a similar way for myself to kind of process the things that I'm that I'm disappointed with in the world or upset about in the world. And the the first se- the first series is a the first volume, The Death Train, is a kind of this combination of this overall thinking about violence and people's lack of feeling of responsibility towards each other, uh, but also combined with a sequence on a train, like you know, a, a killer on a train, because. Taking Pelham 123 is my favorite movie. I love the New York subway is a place I spent many hours of my life. And uh, it feels like the, in there, it's kind of like the, the idea of being trapped in a small space with something on, with something impossible to, to fight off. And in the second one, it's uh, what are the things that are bothering me in, in the Bronx is burning are partly the idea of violence in schools, but also the idea of now it's a wide open space, giving up, giving a more of a sense of, there's no place that's safe. Obviously, if you get into a metal can and then get stuck in a tunnel under the earth in a subway train, like you're you're in a certain mm-hmm. amount of confined danger. But the idea that there's no place that's safe for many of these things. And uh, the third volume that's coming, that's not yet collected, it's not at Skylight Books yet, but it will be someday when Aftershock Comics gets all the issues mm-hmm. out because when they, as they struggle through their bankruptcy proceedings. Uh, the, uh, some, the That third series, which is called Don't Call to Comeback, how, about kind of media and politics and it's very much and readers of it will see that I'm very much channeling my kind of semi semi obsession through fear with the events of January 6th of a couple of years ago and so that's something that is that story is about the way that people see the see the worst of something and take that as license to then do the uh, uh, do the same themselves you know to free themselves by also feeling free to do the worst and so it's been like a it's been very therapeutic to write this series uh, there's a fourth volume that I've been working on, but which I don't know when it's going to ever come out, if ever, which would continue to kind of be me using this to process issues that I'm, that, uh, that I'm interested in, but hopefully always doing it in a way that is kind of excitement and story and satire forward rather than just message forward, because a story that has a strong message behind it is so much more engaging. I know to me 
than a message that has like a sprinkle, sprinkling of story over the top of it. Absolutely. I was good. And I was, I was exactly what I was about to say was sort of that feeling of, I, I love how propulsive it is. And you have all these great characters who are, you know, so there's like the active hunting and, and investigation into the, into Harry by, uh, by like the, the maniac task force, uh, well, I sh and I should say that the the the, the uh, sorry. To oh no! That, that like I so so Maniac Harry is the is the killer. He's this mass killer who is a force of nature in many ways, more than anything else. He's got this kind of low level animal consciousness, but he doesn't like plan. He doesn't do quips. Like he doesn't. Yeah. The only th he doesn't. The only thing he says is oh, her. He just yeah. kind of <laughs> her. And if he's or unless he's on fire, then he yells hurry. <laughs> you know, like it, like he yells is what became his name. But uh, he is he is a he's the focus of it but the, he's not the star of it. And the stars of it are the two members of the government that are actually going after him, the head of the mayor's maniac task force, who's also the only member of the mayor's maniac ta task force, Gina Green, who has a history with, with Harry that unfolds as the series goes on, and uh, Detective Zelda Pettibone of the NYPD, who, uh, t who uh, testified against her partner when her partner shot someone and was punished by being given the maniac beat which is the worst beat because you're never going to solve anything and everyone knows who the culprit is and you're never going to stop them and the two and one of the things that was so exciting to me was how the book went from harry in my thinking about it from harry's story to their story mm -hmm. and how even more interesting to me certainly by the third volume than what is harry gonna who's harry gonna kill this time where's he gonna kill people this time was how are zelda and gina how's their relationship uh, affected by what they're going through and what they're doing and uh, how are they changing as people. And so I don't want people to, to go into this thinking it's just kind of like uh, classic slasher. Right. You know, mindless kills. Getting, and, yeah. yeah, getting killed mindlessly. There's, I mean, that can be fun sometimes. But with this, it's uh, I, the focus for me, a lot of it is on these two characters who are the only ones trying to do something and on the the world around them and trying to create a world where they characters who are killed are more than just kind of like nameless cannon fodder, you know, but who uh, I wanted, in theory, I want to do justice to each of the people in the book that they have their own lives and they weren't born just to be killed, but instead it's something that happened to them. The much the same way that uh, in real life, the people, who, one of the things that's so tragic about these kinds of events is that obviously those people, their purpose in life was not to be a victim. Their purpose in life was to be themselves and live their life and and it's cut short oh so sad well anyway this answer started out i thought i thought being very inspiring and it turns very sad at the end so i apologize for that well i think there i think there's something inspirational about that is you know these are these are more than just uh, photos who are put up on a news report at the end of the day that we all have to deal with i mean you know it's like there that there's something that's that's i think the right attitude to come at a story like this uh with i think there's a complaint with a lot of modern prestige elevated horror maybe is that it is it's all metaphor no no story and yeah no thrill yeah no no uh well i think that's and sometimes that's really good like i love um i'm a big fan of certain elevated horror stuff like that the uh, i feel like i feel like exhibit a for whether you liked elevated horror or not was uh the witch uh and i and i really i really loved that but at the same time it was still it was still a story about a character, you know, and not just atmosphere, even though it's got so much atmosphere in it. And uh, I feel like I can't lie to myself that I have, I get a real visceral entertainment thrill out of 
a certain type of simulated violence, you know, on film or in books or anything like that. Uh, and, and I like to be scared. I like scary things. And the rest of my family, except for my youngest son, who is four, he likes scary stuff, but he doesn't, he's not ready for this. But the rest of my family, they don't like scary things. They don't understand why I like them. Um, but the older I get, the less comfortable I am with kind of mindless simulated violence, with just violence for the sake of violence. And it feels like the, the ways that I can make it palatable to myself and kind of allow myself to enjoy those things is either if there's a meaning behind it or if I feel like I'm at least giving due justice to the characters and, and, and knowing them. If I know who this character is who's getting murdered in this fictional world by this fictional monster, then it means a little bit more to me and it also makes me feel less like I am delegitimizing their existence. There's a moment in... I hate to I hate to say this because the man just died recently, but there's a moment in a uh, in a uh, in uh, Blood Meridian in Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian where he makes an offhanded reference. They go into this town, you know, Blood Meridian. If you've read it, it's just the story of terrible things happening and terrible people doing terrible things. And they're in all these reviews. They're like, finally, someone's revealed the real West, and it's like, no way. There's no way. There's no way. Little the literal devil was running around the real West, and people were just like murdering each other left and right all the time. But there's a part where he offhandedly mentions a child who's been like chained to a post in a town just as a piece of set dressing to show that this is a rough, tough place, like watch out. And, or I guess that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's, it's hell on earth. But, but, and there was part of me that was so mad about it as a reader because I was like, you just created this character. You created a person who is suffering and you just kind of toss them away. And I'll never know anything about that person. And you're not even giving me the chance to know about it. You're just using them as, as decor, as, you know, grim decoration. And again, rest in peace, Cormac McCarthy, everyone loves him. But, but, the, uh, but it was, and I feel like I don't want to do that same thing to my characters. I don't want them to be brought into the world just to suffer as background color and then never think about them again. You know, so the, there's a page in, uh, in the first volume, The Death Train, where kind of there's, a row of panels and each one is the face of someone who is about to get killed by Minicari. I think it's the beginning of issue two. I can't remember. And it mentions their name and kind of where they were going on that train, what they were going to do that day when this happened. And I felt like that was my, that was me trying my best to do, to achieve this goal of every character feeling like a character, because obviously the body counts I'm dealing with in these books, not everyone could be a character. The books aren't long. We don't have enough pages, you know, it'd be crazy. Uh, but the, but to make them briefly, just to get that idea across to the reader that these characters exist, you know, and I'm not just throwing, I'm not just throwing them away. There's more to them than, than that. And just, you know, I should have mailed a copy to Cormac McCarthy when he was been alive when he was alive and, and been like, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. <laughs> but I'll never have the chance. I'll never have the chance. Yeah. yeah I, you know, and I'm sure he'd have really responded to that. Oh yeah. I think he would have opened the mail, read it, read the book, Processed. Processed it, written back. In no way would he have just not opened the mail or thrown it away. More likely I would have read to because I have to assume, it's so funny, I, you know, he's a professional author, you know, but I think of him as like this mysterious man who lives like, you know, on a mountain somewhere that, that, right. you know, like, that I would write it to like his, I would write this letter to his literary agent and they would just kind of throw it on the pile of never to be delivered mail because they don't even know where their client lives. You know, they don't, they don't know where he's roaming, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. He's rambling from town to town. It was, you know, idea. And, uh... <laughs> well, so I, and I, so you kind of uh, hit around a lot of the things I wanted to kind of talk about there, which is, I think you do a, a phenomenal job of, again, having this kind of, like it's, it sort of plays like a disaster film or again, taking a poem one, two, three, 
again, is a, a, I think such a great reference point because that movie does the smartest thing, which is give you the entire like sl- subsection of New York. Like it, it cuts through the entire, you see everything. You go from the mayor's office. How hard was it not to give the mayor a cold? I just got to wonder. It's, I mean, it was very, it was very hard not to just rip off lots of stuff from that, from that movie. And the, that's, and talk about prescience. Like the amazing thing about that movie is, so anyone who's listening who's not familiar with the, with the taking of Pelham 123, the one from the original one for 1974, not the, not the remake. It is, it's such a brilliant movie. It is so suspenseful. Every time I've seen it probably 20 times, every time I watch it, I don't think they're going to be able to save a day. And, but it's so funny. And at the same time, it's so prescient because the mayor in it looks and sounds so much like Ed Koch, who was not yet mayor when they made the movie. He wouldn't be mayor for years. And the, it's so, it's a, but at the same time, like the, the idea that, yeah, you're watching a crisis at every level of, uh, of the, the people dealing with it immediately, the cops in the middle, the, the government at top. And the, the, it, was, it was a huge influence that way. And another influence, to be honest, was uh, in a similar way, was the movie Sheen Godzilla that came out a while back, oh, where mm-hmm. they, which I loved. And the, because I'm a big G fan, but also, but I, I liked that they were saying, okay, well, what, there's a giant monster rampaging through Tokyo. And now we're going to see how this is treated as like a public health issue that the government has to deal with. And you're watching the bureaucracy of the government having to process this new thing that, that it hasn't dealt with before. And so that was, that was a, that was a big influence on me about how to, how to handle uh, a story like this or how to handle a problem like this, you know, um, that where your focus is less on the, on the problem and more on the reaction to the problem. Which is so is so smart, and that's sort of where it branches into that kind of. You can get into the satire of it, of like you know a mayor who's just basically those people on the train are gone. Very much, what do they expect for their lousy thirty five cents to live forever? Uh, yeah. Sort of blase attitude about it, and and uh, so when in that was there, did you feel like you were bringing sort of? Uh, I mean, I guess years of political satire to this kind of thing. Was that did that feel like a a, a sort of you, obviously you have this one outlet for your murderous vision uh, <laughs> and then was there the, uh, sim- simultaneously this other outlet for for how you're feeling politically and how you wanted to kind of satirize that yeah yes very much so i mean I, I, the thing you know I, I worked at the daily show for about 13 years all, all told i was a writer there for about uh, about eight of those years i think for about seven and a half of those years something like that and the thing that i learned so much there and so much from john stewart about taking something and then processing it into a, into entertainment basically, or making a point about something in a way that is uh, entertaining, but also still forceful. And a big part of that is the first step of being able to crystallize what it is that you're thinking. Like, what do you, what are you actually feeling and what is the point you actually want to make? And the, and I feel like there's a, it's easy to tell a story where the government is corrupt, where the government is not solving a problem because they, that problem is helping them in some way. It's the whole conspiracy idea of mm-hmm. false flags. Like so there's something that an old Daily Show coworker of mine told me once that has always stuck with me where he was on, he was at jury duty and he started talking to another prospective jury, juror about a, a recent shooting. And they, and she was saying, oh, it's a false flag operation. The government did it in order to, uh, in order to take away guns. And he goes, well, why do you think that? And she goes, well, if it was real, the government would do something about it. And that moment I found so heartbreaking because it was like, oh, this person believes in conspiracies, believes the government is evil. But even above that, 
deeper than that, they have a real faith in the ability of government to do things. And so if something bad has happened and the government doesn't solve it, it must be because the government wants it to happen because otherwise they would stop it. And there's a line from that that, uh, that I tried to use in a project once, the project didn't get off the ground, this, about, this project about a conspiracy addict where they're saying, would you rather live in a world where that in a world uh, in the control of an evil conspiracy or in a world where nobody is in control? And it feels like that is the that's it's easy to write a story where the government is evil and it but the reality is the government is made up of individuals who are selfish short-sighted uh maybe they're greedy but they're not greedy in the like oh if i do this then the price of st the stock and guns will go up and i own all of that but more in the sense of like greedy in the sense of like i want all the i want all the uh the praise and none of the blame and if i touch this even if i solve the problem i'm gonna get blamed i was talking to someone recently to my brother-in-law about uh, the uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, uh, was it a year or two ago? And how yeah. that, one, how it kind of feels like it's already been forgotten, but what a what a necessary, in my opinion, ripping off of the Band-Aid that was, where it was like, we've been in this war for 20 years. It is not getting better. We are making no progress. How long are we going to be there? And then they managed to airlift like 100,000 people out of the country in like a week and a half or something. But the, and how much I admire that, President Biden was like, he must have known, I'm going to get a lot of crap for this, but I have to do it. Yeah. And how a lot of people don't have that. It's easy to not have that ability to absorb the, absorb the crap, basically. And so to not to do the thing. And so with the mayor in this, who's Mayor DeManzio, because it, because at the time the mayor of New York was Mayor de Blasio. And now it's, I feel yeah. like he's been replaced by Eric Adams, who is so much more this thing, even than, than de Blasio. Yes. But uh, the... The, to have government people, to be able to say to myself, going back to what we talked about with Daily and all that, to be able to crystallize, what I'm saying is not that the government is evil or a conspiracy, not that the government wants to get something out of this, but rather that the government doesn't have, the people in the government don't have the willpower to do it, and they don't have the desire to do it, because what are they going to get out of it? And more that is, it's the old, was it Robert Heinlein who said the thing about, like, don't, don't attribute to evil what, what you can attribute to stupidity, like a... That, that that's the world we live in. And rather than a, I don't know, I've, I've, I feel like a, when I was a kid and I was younger, like a teenager, I loved conspiracy stuff. And I, and looking back on it now, I find the, the idea of a, the kinds of conspiracy I was interested in very juvenile because there are conspiracies mm -hmm. in the world, like rich people take Supreme court justices on vacations and then they get beneficial rulings, not because it's a quid pro quo, but because the Supreme court justice is like, yeah, well, I see where this guy is coming from. Like, he, I'm on his side. Yeah, you know what? He makes a lot of sense. You know, and they and it's this kind of deeper corruption as opposed to the conspiracies of, mm, well, uh, if we well the aliens landed, but we'll hide them and we'll use their technology to, I don't know, like rig the Super Bowl or whatever. You know that kind of stuff. It's a like those don't really exist, and they're a way of creating order out of chaos in your mind. Um, but there is a. I don't know. There's a, so so to me it was it was being able to crystallize overall. What am I saying about this problem of gun violence? And it is, oh, it is easier for people to just not deal with a problem, and then just accept that bad things are going to happen. You know. And so that was the oh, what a long answer again. That was that was that Daily Show training. What it really taught tra trained me more than anything was was exactly to do that was to be able to go through the thought process of identifying what is it that I want to say, and then how do I transmute that into entertainment, you know? Um, 
So there was, there was a lot of tangents in there. There's a lot of, I went off on a lot of different directions on that one. This is, <laughs> and this is you, you as a listener to the Flophouse, you know, this is not, you're ready for this. But yeah, yeah. Your <laughs> listeners who are not Flophouse listeners, they're like, oh, he's all over the place. <laughs> oh no, I'm very, I'm very prepared. I'm just in my, I'm like, I'm in a, I'm, so, I'm in, I'm already listening somewhere else. You know, it's, it's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, this is like the, I'm realizing this is one of my issues is, is uh, if you wind me up to talk, I'll just keep, keep talking for forever. Like those chattering teeth that you can get at novelty shops. <laughs> and I have to give a, I'm appearing at a science fiction convention in September and I have to give a speech. And I'm like, earlier today, I was like, what am I going to talk about? And now I'm like, oh, I'll just get up there. I'll just get up there and talk about stuff. <laughs> It'll be fine. I'll go. Yeah, yeah. Running out of things to say is not an issue. Yeah, organizing it is the issue. Uh, well, it, I think that's, uh, it makes a lot of sense. It's a kind of a perfect melding of those two worlds for you. And and again, like clearly comes around through stuff that you love. And and so I, I guess, and obviously it's born out of, the idea is born out of you being on a subway in New York and, and having that feeling or having this vision. Obviously it was always going to be maniac of New York, right? I think there's like a very... New York attitude that's brought to this it, it like I, I almost feel like you couldn't do like maniac of Los Angeles in the same way like I it, like no because everyone's in their cars and like they, they wouldn't you know there's not there, so it's New York is it's a very special city like I said I grew up right outside of there and then lived there for 18 years or so uh went you know I went to college there and then I was there until I moved to Los Angeles in my mid to late 30s and it's such a very special city and it's so there's so many different types of people there it's so densely packed and the thing that was so frustrating to me that i had to leave the fact that everyone is constantly on top of each other the way i always think of it is like people in a termite hill just kind of climbing all over each mm. other all the time like when i was young it was very exciting that there was always something going on there's so much you were so constantly stumbling on interesting things and Los Angeles, unfortunately, where I live now and will live probably the rest of my life, and because it's much easier to live here in a lot of ways. Uh, until the fires get too bad, it's much easier to live here. Uh, the, it's a, it doesn't have the same, there is the same diversity of people, there's the same diversity of places, but they're all spread out. And whereas in New York, you have 100 different worlds all stacked on top of each other overlapping. And I used to, my last job in Brooklyn before we moved to Los Angeles, I was working at a TV show that was shooting at um, at Steiner Studios over at the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And I lived in Park Slope. And it was a 40, 45 minute walk to and from work every day. It was fantastic. It was just the right amount of walking that I needed. And on the way, I would pass through a couple different neighborhoods on the way there. And I would interact briefly with so many different people and just see different things. And in New York, there's just this sense of, yeah, all these worlds colliding into each other constantly. and what that means is it's a great place to see that just the, the diversity of what it's like to be a human being, but it's also a place where people get used to shutting each other out and ignoring each other because the only way to stay sane in a place like that is to ignore a certain amount of it, is to put blinders up around you. And that is unfortunately uh, how people deal with big problems to a certain extent is they put blinders up. And so New York is both uh, the worst example of that and also the best example, because if you take those blinders down, you're just flooded with these different experiences. Like I, I spent, again, I spent so much time on the subways and cause they take forever. And there were all these moments where I'd be on one train and another train would pass by and your eyes would suddenly click into place into focus so that you could see the face of another person in the other train and they'd be gone in a millisecond, you know, and you just have this after image burned into your mind of what this face looked like. 
And it was just, I was so in awe all the time of that's a person who has their own life. They have their own world around them. I'm never going to know them. I'm never going to see them or talk to them. I'm never going to see them again. I'm never going to talk to them. They don't know me. We live in the same city, but each of us has our own worlds inside that city that to us is the whole world. And it made me, I would get very religious and mystical thinking about it, about, you know, the, uh, what, what kind of, what kind of power could create this kind of universe where everyone is the center of their own world, basically. And it's so full of detail and so full of things. And, you know, each blade of grass has its own, you know, life and its own characteristics and so forth and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, but it's, but a lot of it was born out of that, the excitement of living in a city that was full of millions of different stories that you just catch little glimpses of. And it's, I get that a little bit in Los Angeles, you know, but it is not, it's not quite the same. There's no, I, I haven't found the place in LA, because maybe there isn't one, I don't know, where people have to be together who are very different kinds of people. Like in, in New York, unless you are super wealthy and you can take a helicopter everywhere, you're going to take the subway. Because even if you, I mean, I would, we would watch, my wife and I would watch Succession and the characters are always in luxury cars driving around. And I'm like, the subway's going to take you less time. Like just get on the subway. Like it's that much easier. And, uh, but everyone is there. And so you're going to spend a certain amount of your day just sharing space and sharing moments with people that are very different from you. And I kind of miss that in Los Angeles. The best I can get with that in Los Angeles is to like make a point of going to like Popeye's restaurants in different parts of the city, you know, where like, you know, cause I, cause Popeye's is my favorite. And so like, to be like, well, I guess today I'll go to this one that's in a neighborhood I don't know. So I'll just have a moment with people that I otherwise wouldn't meet, but it's not quite the same, you know, there's, <laughs> you're, you're limited to the self-selecting sample of people who eat at Popeye's. <laughs> and, and in that way, you're all kind of alike, you know, it's not really. The- exactly. We share a deeper bond than, than even many families have. <laughs> uh, well, so that's, yeah, I, I, I think that's so interesting. There, there there's just you, kind of like it, it can, it builds a certain type of empathy, but also you just have to be like, I, that's none of my business. I'm not looking at that. And I yes. have to keep going. And so when you have like this walking embodiment who's a machete wielding, uh, you know, massacrist, it's like, oh, wow, that's, that's a, it feels like that in, in, I guess, macrocosm almost. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a phrase I have about satire. Uh, I'm working, I'm writing a book right now called Joke Farming for, Mm -hmm. um, for the University of Chicago Press that's about joke writing. And I've been putting off writing the satire chapter because it's the one that I feel kind of like the closest to, and I have to get it exactly right. But there's a phrase that I want to use in it uh, that I call Kalen's Law. And my editor was like, just recently in my in his notes on my outlines, he was like, I don't know if you can call it that. Like, certainly someone must have said something like this before. I'm like, I don't know. But, but my law on that is that satire exaggerates to reveal. It takes a situation and it exaggerates it to such an enormous degree that the hidden assumptions that we take for granted or refuse to admit to ourselves, they become so enormous that we have to admit, we have to recognize them and have to admit that they are, that they're either incorrect or misguided or, or you know, that, we're, that something's bad about them or wrong about them. And it feels like with this, it's taken having a machete wielding masked kind of, you know, uh, as uh, death elemental, as my friend, uh, as my podcast co-host Drew Wellington refers to Jason, uh, to, to kind of help kind of dig out some of these points. And I remember when the, when the first volume uh, again, Maniac of New York to Death Train, Volume One. When it first came out, I remember seeing a response from either a reviewer or someone online saying, "Like, I just couldn't believe it because if something like this was going on, like someone would do something about it." And I was like, "Well, 
they wouldn't like that's the point of the book and so i was like i guess i didn't exaggerate it enough to get through to to reveal that um but there's i'd love for you to have just started posting like news story after news story in the comments of just like i'm just gesturing look at me oh that'd be so depressing that'd be so sad (laughs) bring everybody down but uh it would work but or maybe not at what cost uh, you know yeah yeah exactly what cost exactly uh but exactly that it's a you're taking something that is a deliberately outsized, unrealistic situation, and you are forced, and you're using it to force someone to recognize something that they might not have recognized before. And I think the the, the trouble with satire is that you're often preaching to the to the choir already. Like they like the people who pick it up are already kind of on your side. But the hope is that you can get someone in for the story and that they'll ingest the message. There was I had a I had a very uh, I had a very important moment in my creative history when I went to see the movie Kong Skull Island, where there's a part in that movie where, I mean, it's a really fun movie. Yeah. Uh, there's a gorilla and he throws helicopters at people. And, uh, what more they, could you want? <laughs> exactly. And I've been working at the Daily Show at the time and I was deciding whether I should leave or not. And I was like, well, I want to write something where a gorilla throws helicopters at people. Like, uh, But the there's a part where the soldiers are wandering around Skull Island and one of them says something like, if you go looking for a war, you're going to find one. And I was like, I bet that's going to stick in people. The people who see this movie, I bet that thought will bury itself in their mind in a deeper way than all the jokes about the Iraq war and the, and the needlessness of it that I did at the daily show, because it's just like, they're going to think about that, that King Kong movie. And that thought is going to come to them and it's coming to them in the form of a story so they can relate to it. And it's not just an intellectual thing. It's an emotional thing. And so there's a, it's hard because it's like a, you want to, you wish you could just come out and tell somebody something, but it means more when they have to dig it out a little bit or when it's embedded in that story. And it's why like people go back and reread poems for centuries and people don't tend to go back and reread recipes for centuries, unless you're one of those people who likes to make old food, you know, (laughs) but it's, and it's because a recipe is just like, do this, do this, do this, do this. You have pancakes and a poem is forcing you to think about imagery or feelings or, uh, or even just, abstract senses that when, when you think about them, it hit, when you realize it, when it clicks into place, it hits you, you know, it strikes you as something or you find something in there that you didn't expect. And there's something so much more powerful about that. So I wish I could write a comic book where it was just like, we should do something about these guns, but instead it's, or we're like the, you know, the government should try to solve problems instead of ignoring them. But it's a, I feel like it's more effective to do it in the form of a, of a monster on the loose, you know? I, absolutely. And, and I'll, uh, we're kind of we're kind of shifting into wrap up mode here, but I, I want to just so I, I hope I, at this point we've had some spoilers, so I don't feel bad saying it. I'll spoil the whole thing. I'll tell people what happened. Well, it's just go for it. Okay, all right. Good. Look, well, look, I'll tell. Well, maybe I won't spoil the whole thing. Let's not tell them like, everything that happens. But, right. yeah. uh, well, so, so you reference uh, uh, you reference it earlier that there's a massacre af- in uh, Bronx's burning, which. I mean, in the title alone, you should kind of, if you're a person, you should understand where this is going. Like, I, <laughs> <laughs> like the idea. Well, except, except there's a little bit that the, uh, yeah, I guess that's it. Like, the, you know, cause it's a, I don't know. The, I'll, I'll, I'll spoil it a little bit, which is, so there's a, so Harry gets, after, after being at this school, and most of the story is him in this school and the government and the city government trying to handle that. Uh, he man, he escapes and manages to get to opening day at, Yankee Stadium. And it was one of these things where I was like, this is, it was one of these scenes that I am, I grossed myself out thinking about because it's like, I wanted to see this so badly. This scene, <laughs> like the, it was just like this, 
this huge number of people and how scary it would be to be at that place. You don't expect something like this to happen. And he, and so the maniac Harry he becomes enraged when he sees people, he hates people. And, uh, and his immediate instinct is to destroy them, to get rid of them. And that he is confronted with so many people all at once that they are in such a precarious situation that there's already such a history of people being hurt in stampedes or, or riots at, at sporting events, you know, that it was just like, it was something that I was, uh, I was, I was, yeah, terrifying myself with how, with how enjoyably scared I was at the idea of seeing this happen, you know? Well, and so much of it, it works so much. I, I am in fact a Yankee fan. Uh, and so oh, okay. I used to be in college as a Yankee fan. And then the players that I liked, they kind of drifted away from the team. You know, your Scott Brocious's and your Paul O'Neill's oh. and so forth. And your Jorge Posada's. Your, like they, uh, they don't, the core four? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't, yeah it's, they, I, and I would go to see them play. I went to school in New York and I would go to see the Yankee games. And like, and then I kind of drifted away from it. And I started telling people I was a Kansas City Royals fan because in New York, no one cares about the Royals. So they don't ask me anything about them. <laughs> um, but now I live in Los Angeles. My older son is a huge diehard Dodgers fan. So now suddenly we're all Dodgers fans. But anyway, you're saying you're a Yankees fan. Oh, no. So well, I hope this was, I hope you didn't take this too, as a, as an, uh, too offensively. I hope no, you weren't oh, too no, insulted no. by seeing this there. Well, <laughs> first of all, I was just going to say the art was phenomenal because there's one uh, pa- like full page of, of Harry, Monster Harry in like what is now the new Yankee Stadium, like the concourse, I guess. And yeah, I was like, yeah, that's yeah. the concourse. I know, like even sort of, <laughs> it's it's very abstractly art. Like the, the art is really abstract and wonderful. But, and I was wondering if there was some like trademark copyright. Well, there was certainly, I really want, I wanted so badly, one of the covers, I wanted him to, the, the, one of the, the cover of that issue, Harry is like, is wearing a baseball cap on the cover. Hmm. And I think the the way Andrea first drew it, I think it was with the Yankees logo on the cap. And we were told you can't do that. Like we yeah. can't use the, we can say Yankee stadium. We can't use the logo. We can't have any insignia anywhere. We can't have any players. Um, but it was, oh, he does such a good job of, of making it feel like the real places, you know, there was, yeah. and the school that it takes place at, I realized at one point I never sent him like a photo reference for what I wanted that school to look like. And I was, and I found a picture to send to him and he was like, Oh, you mean like this? And he sent me the page and he had drawn it already. And it looked just like it. Like he was like, <laughs> like he was, but uh, the, he's someone who, I mean, he's, he's an Italian artist. He lives in Florida. He's been to New York, but I don't know how, how, I don't think he's ever lived there. I'm not sure. But his, his sense of um, the sense of place is so, is so strong. And like the, uh, there are scenes in the series that take place at the Museum of Natural History in uh, in New York, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And in the third season, in the third season, in the third series, uh, there's a lot that takes place at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is another one of my favorites. And he's like, he's just so, he just does such a great job of of replicating that place in a way that feels like it's really happening in that spot. So I'm glad that that, I'm glad that you were like, oh, that's Yankee Stadium. Like that yeah, looks it, like Yankee it, Stadium. Yeah. Because I, I was totally prepared for like, you know, anonymous ballpark you know it kind of vibe yeah, yeah. and i was like no no that's it they're there that's it that's the moment <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly where he would be you come in through there yeah. that's it uh and and i think what was so powerful and i i i pause to use this word because i mean it totally as a compliment it's it's almost like heavy-handedly perfect in terms of like imagery and what you do in that whole setting where it's like it's baseball it's like america pure americana the mm-hmm. national anthem is playing and then oh, harry so, i mean it's lovely i was it's, it's a, i hope you, i'm glad you liked it because it is very heavy-handed that they're literally like <laughs> to, to to paint a word picture for the for the for the listeners they 
the, the Harry is he, he's left the school and Gina and Zelda are on this trail, but they, they've lost track of him. And another person is like, oh, he went that way. And they look over that way. And they, when he, and they know he's he seems to be attracted by sound. Sound seems to draw him to things. And they look over and it's Yankee Stadium and the, and the National Anthem is playing. And you're going through the, ca- the kind of camera, if you will, like the mm-hmm. eye of the of the of you, the viewer is going through the the corridors of like the maintenance, you know, and security walkways of, of Yankee Stadium and there's dead people lying in the halls as the, as the national anthem is playing and the, and so, and it finishes right in time as Harry gets a glimpse of these people in the stadium, they get a glimpse of him. And it was like, I, and I was having so much fun timing that out and imagining it as a scene it, like as always movies are my favorite thing in the world, you know, mm-hmm. the other than my family, I guess. And, uh, <laughs> the, and uh, so the, imagining it as a scene in a film and having it the timing hit right off the right away and have it and it's, it's super heavy hand you got it, it's literally like all these dead bodies and the and the national anthem is playing like it's it's a i'm subtlety is not is not what i'm going for in that moment so so i'm glad it worked for you because it definitely is like a it's a sometimes i mean that's the thing is like if, if i can call it art which i'm going to like sometimes art is subtle and elegant like the poetry as i met earlier and sometimes it's powerful because it hits you right over the head you know there's a you look at speaking of kind of like New York artists, you look at the work of like Spike Lee and Spike Lee's work is powerful in big part because he is not subtly trying to hint at what he's trying to say. He is, just, he is telling you as hard as possible what he wants to say and, and how he wants you to feel. And it, it has a, that can, that's got its own power to it. You know, sometimes when, uh, sometimes it's better to, to write something in a way that is unmistakable, even if it, even if it skirts um, like, being too super obvious uh but and sometimes it's better to be more elegant you know but that's look it's new york new york's all about people yelling at each other and arguing all the time you know it's not a subtle city it's, a, it's, a, it's an in-your-face city i i loved it i i think i had a smile on my face the whole time because i was just like i i i see this and i'm loving it and i'm seeing it and i love it <laughs> and then it finishes with play ball and I was like, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. That's good. That's exactly the feeling I wanted to have. It was just like, oh, okay, here, here it is. Oh, oh. like, and, and then the, yeah. And then uh, it's just like that, if anything, even more than I talked about how I wanted to see this character slashing people up in Yankee you know, Stadium, more, even more than seeing the actual killing, the actual massacre, uh, the horror of it, it's that moment of the anticipation when you know it's going to happen. Like that, that's the most powerful moment to me in horror is the moment when anytime a character has a sudden understanding that they're about to die or the audience has a sudden understanding that something bad is about to happen and it hasn't happened yet. It's like the, um, the movie House of the Devil, the Ty West movie, where most of the movie is super scary. It's just this girl walking around a house, this, this teenager walking around a house that seems empty. And there's a part where she's in a room and there's a light on outside and you just see like the shadow of someone walking down the hall crosses that that little thing and it is so much scarier in that moment than anything that happens afterwards just know all the the actual violence that happens afterwards is not as scary as that moment when you know something's about to happen you know that 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 moment of understanding and anticipation oh gives me chills what a scary thing to have that's the that like that's a to live eternally in that moment would be like the scariest most beautiful thing for a horror fan i guess but uh you can't. Eventually, something has to happen. You have to collapse that waveform or whatever. To bring it in a little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, this just has occurred to me because I you said her name, uh, Zelda Pettibone. I, that belongs in like a 1930s screwball comedy. That oh, is thanks. that is a perfect <laughs> screwball name. 
well, well, Pettibone Zelda is a uh, is a is a play on the name of it's a it's an alternate version of the name of someone I know I used to know mm. and who had a name that started with with Z and who I wanted to use and I decided I'll use not their exact name but Pettibone is a screw I I did know someone once named Pettibone but the, but there's a character in the movie His Girl Friday who is who's the the kind of court courier or or so he's delivering a message and his name is Pettibone and he keeps spelling it and uh, he's I think right. it's, yeah I think it's I think it's Billy Gilbert who plays him and. He's just so funny and he's constantly a step behind in the conversation with whoever he's talking to. And, uh, but I've, it's always struck me as like a name that it's a, it's a name that, uh, it's a real name, but it's also kind of like a, a, a distinctive silly sounding name. So very, very uh, there's something about, there's something about using, about applying that name to the character who at the very least in this first, in the first volume of Maniac New York is the most cynical and kind of like, you know, hardened person in the, in the thing, uh, as opposed to Gina Green, who is, you know, the, who's the newbie and she's full of optimism or at least full of, uh, full of self faith, you know, and things like that confidence. You know? Yeah. She's, she's, she has a lot of fervor for it. Well, so it makes sense. I, I was like, I, I was like, I know I've heard this in a screwball. So that makes so much. And I, and I love <laughs> yeah, this girl yeah. Friday. So I'm like, oh, that actually truly was where that, well, I'm happy to hear that. Um, as I've been on a real run of those and they're the best, uh, uh, so, so as we kind of wrap up and I think we've done a lot of Maniac New York talk, uh, I just, your, your background is Writers Guild on Strike. And I guess I just, I would want to clear the floor and say, I mean, if, if you just have anything you wanted to say about the strike and, and obviously like we're a, a union shopper with the CWA. And so we're obviously there for, you know, labor action in, in all forms. So, uh, I mean, if you just want to kind of lay out a little bit of what's going on with the strike and, and to our listeners, I think that'd be great. You know, the Writers Guild of America, East and West, uh, I'm a member yep. of the West. I used to be a member of the East. Uh, they are the guild that covers screenwriting, television writing, news writing, a lot of different types of writing, but mostly film and television. And the we are on strike because we are negotiations have broken off with the AMPTP, the organization that represents the studios and large networks. And we're asking for reasonable things, writing in, in recent the past decade or two has become a much harder career to sustain. There's less work to go around. The work that goes around is for less time. It pays less. Uh, the passive streams of residual payment in which are every time our employers exploit the work that we've done for them, we also receive a little bit of uh, payment for it. Um, that has fallen fallow to a certain extent because of the new streaming paradigm in which money has been replaced by subscriber growth in a way that is unsustainable entirely. There was a very, there was a very sustainable, not entirely fair, but sustainable system that was in place for roughly a century in film and roughly 60 years in television. And in the past 20 years, the industry decided we're not going to do that anymore. We want to be unsustainable. We don't want to, we don't want to make regular profits anymore. It's like they saw what Napster did to music and they were like, whoa, 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 whoa. No one's going to do that to us. We're going to do that to us. And so uh, at the same time, there's many fears in our industry, as are in, in lots of industries, about the increasing encroachment of technology in positions that were that should be performed by human beings, by creative individuals, and just the feeling that our work has been our work is just as profitable, if not more profitable, than it once was, and yet we are being valued less. Our work is being valued less. We're seeing less of it, and it's harder and harder for writers to make their living. And so we're on strike. We're we're demanding equitable pay, we're demanding an equitable share of their success, the company's success since 
They literally can't do anything without our work. Uh, and it's been very heartening to see the support that the other unions in the entertainment industry and beyond and the other service unions, things like that have been the support they're showing for us. Uh, it's been heartening to see the support that the public has shown. It feels like it really feels like everyone is on our side, except for the people that we are negotiating, that we are trying to negotiate with. And I have such extreme faith that we are going to get through this and we're going to get the things we deserve. Um, it's just taking a long slog because they don't want to give it to us. And it comes down to it, a, some of it comes down to money and some of it comes down to an ideological disagreement about where human beings and creative professionals fit in the world of entertainment and culture. And there's a real clash between people who want to create things and people who really don't care what gets created as long as they can be paid as individuals, even if it's not good for the companies, even if it's not good for the people working for them, even if it's not good for the wider culture, they see these companies as just a way for executives at the top to make a lot of money. And that's damaging ultimately. There's a, so there's a lot of individual things that I could talk about uh, writer's room sizes or um, uh, residual rates or writers not being involved in the production process. But what it ultimately comes down to is we want sustainable careers and we want to keep providing the world with the entertainment and art and culture that it's come to depend on from us. That there's a, and I, and one of the reasons that I believe deeply that we will succeed is that the world does not need streaming services and the world does not need cable channels and the world does not need, the world doesn't need television. The world doesn't need film. The world doesn't need, but the, what the world, but the world needs stories. That stories and entertainment are a basic human need, almost as important as food and water. And so we, they need us more than we need them. We can do, we can do that. I can tell stories in other forms. They can't, they can't put out television that doesn't have jokes or stories or entertainment in it. You know, there's no, there's no way to do that. You can't just, you can't point a camera at a vacuum cleaner instruction manual and then, or, or at a, uh, or at a computer, at a computer screen that's just running code and then broadcast it to people. You can, I guess, no one's going to watch it, but the, unless they want to go to sleep, I guess. But, and so I know we'll get through it, but well, part of the reason we'll get through it is because we have the support of, because our union is strong and, and united that the other unions are with us and that the general population the public and our and the people who are in our audiences are with us. And that means a lot. So I want to say thank you to them very much. Thank you to anyone who's listening for supporting us, even if it's just moral support. But if you do want to support us in a, in a financial way, uh, then there's a fund called the Entertainment Fund uh, at entertainmentcommunity.org. And that is a fund where if you want to help us and you feel like you can't afford to, uh, you can make a donation to their television and film professional fund. And that provides money that workers who are on strike, who are feeling a financial pinch can dig, can apply for and, and take some of in order to get through this time so they can keep their families fed and keep their houses over their heads and things like that. Um, so that's entertainmentcommunity.org. Um, but otherwise, yeah, just keep, just keep uh, supporting us and we really appreciate it. I'm very thankful for it. I think that that's phenomenal and that kind of says it all. And uh, I, it, I mean, yeah, that says it all. There's there's a lot of money flowing to the top, and a lot of the people who do the work don't don't get to see the you know, the gains uh, of what they of what they created, and that's a that's that's a an unsustainable model uh, over over long term. So you've uh, you've plugged the entertainment community. Is there anything you want to plug personally? Besides, I mean, obviously, people will come to 1814 North Vermont Skylight Arts Annex and buy Main Inc. of New York. Is there anything else you wanted to, to throw out there? 
uh, no, just all the things that I've done. The Maniac of New York, it's available at Skylight Books. Skylight may also have my two children's picture books, mm-hmm. Horse Meets Dog and Shark and Hippo, and uh, my podcast, The Flophouse, which is such nonsense. It's just dumb nonsense about movies, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Uh, and I have this book that will someday come out about joke writing called Joke Farming uh, from University of Chicago Press. I'm writing it now. Hopefully it'll come out the next year or two, I don't know. Uh, but keep an eye out for it if you have any interest in learning how to write jokes. Uh, it's a serious, but not too serious guide to to writing jokes. But uh, that's all I think. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, if in two years, I'm still at Skylight doing podcast, if they're still letting me do podcasts in two years at Skylight, I'd love to have you back on. <laughs> yes, excellent. I'll be there. I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And that is, that's a contractual, you know, you're blocked in where, you know, we got the pod. Yeah, that's, that's legal. Yeah, got it. that's binding. Yep, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I appreciate everything. Appreciate the time. And, uh, and yeah, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next time on the Skylight Books Podcast. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Skylight Books podcast series. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to check out the book featured in this episode or others, please visit skylightbooks.com. If you're in the Los Angeles area, stop by for one of our live in-person author events. You can find a calendar on our website. If you like this podcast, leave us a review. It really helps us out. Our music is by Duck the Piano Wire. Till next time. <laughs>